Welcome to the Cattle Call Podcast. This month, we are actually competing six months since we started this project, and we have one of the most special guests that we could have in this career call. We talked with Dr. Richard Zinn, who is competing 40 years at UC Davis, and it was an amazing, amazing call. It was a pleasure to hear about his career, his path, and things that he has done his whole life. So stay tuned, enjoy the call. Don't get disencouraged by the quality of the audio because you won't regret if you stay until the end. Enjoy this amazing call and thank you very much for listening to us this six months and we hope you stay with us for a long time. So let's go ahead and call Brooke Latex to join our call. Hello, Brooke, how are you? Hi, Pedro, I'm great, how are you? Pretty good, is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Thank you. So let's go ahead. Uh, I will call, as I mentioned, I will, talk, I will call Dr. Zin. Dr. Zin has been working at UC Davis for almost 40 years or since 1981, if I'm not wrong. But he, I will let him talk more about his career and what he's been doing during this time here uh, at the university. So good morning, Dr. Zin. Good morning, Pedro and Brooke. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Z, the way that we start this, uh, we usually start with two simple questions. And those are the questions that we joke that we cannot miss. After that, we can just talk about anything that, that we want and see how the conversation goes. So, my two first questions is, where are you from and what do you do in your life? Well, actually, I'm born here in El Centro, in Imperial Valley, California. And uh, so... I've had the privilege of actually working my career out where I was raised and born. My work, as far as my work, obviously, I'm a professor for University of California, Davis, in the Department of Animal Science. And my area of research is uh, health, nutrition, and management of feedlot cattle. Pretty good. So, Dr. Z, now we know that you grew up here in the Valley. You grew up in El Centro. And, and now you, you work, you've been working for UC Davis for a long time. My question is, how, how did you decide to work in, in animal science? And, and more specifically, why did you choose to work with, with feedlot cattle? Actually, uh, my background is uh, growing up is feedlot and dairy. Uh, my family owned a small feedlot and, and, uh, and then I also uh, worked at about a 200-cow dairy during my high school years. So my background is livestock. But I think everybody has uh, can look at pivotal things in their life, things that, that really change the direction uh, in a surprising way. And uh, you can look back on that and see how what a great impact it had, some specific thing. And this is, and in my University of California, and it was uh, Dr. Glenn Lofton. And he introduced himself and, and said that he, that, that he had found out that I, was, uh, that I had a lot of experience working cattle and was wondering if I'd be interested in a, in a summer job until I went back to school. And, and of course, I was delighted when he told me uh, where this place was. I was surprised that. The research center was actually, uh, I had delivered paper. I delivered the Los Angeles Times to that location. And, and I thought it was probably a military compound. I had no idea what that place was because 
it was painted green. I'm sure they got surplus paint military. <laughs> and that's how they painted that place. But uh, but anyway, I went there and and uh, and I just loved the work. Uh, he was doing research on heat stress at the time, looking at energy density of the diet, looking at fat actually, supplemental fat and 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 how that might help reduce the heat increment. We had work with cattle using sprinkling and looking at different times of sprinkling. And we also had one project where we were looking at uh, refrigerated water and the effect of that. We had one little project where we were looking at cattle and refrigerated barn versus sprinkling versus uh, conventional outdoor pen. It was just, I just was, I just loved it. It was uh, everything I did uh, was just, it was a great experience with the extension people from Davis that came down to do projects as well. I, I was looking at, uh, we had meters to measure dust from feedlots to different locations. And so I was out reading those meters and it was just a great, great experience. And, and uh, when the time came to, to go back to school, I went into his office uh, there at the research center. And, and I said to him, I said, uh, Dr. Lofgren, I wanna know what I need to do to have your job. And and I said, and I want you to know that I don't mean a job like yours. I mean your job. And he laughed and he said, well, Richard, when you go back to school, uh, go to the front of the line. Back in those days, when you registered uh, at the university, that in our case, it was in, the, in a large auditorium, uh, the basketball uh, arena. And uh, and every department was in a in a line. It was in alphabetical order, so you would just find the department that corresponded to your area, and you would you would go there, and and there would be people, uh, faculty from the department at each station, and you would just register uh, for that department. And uh, so he told me to go to to the beginning because that would be animal science, and. Uh, and I said, animal science, and I had never heard of it before. And uh, yeah, I said, no, nah, that's what you have to do. You're going to have to join the animal science department. <laughs> and uh, and so and so I did. And and those people were amazing. I mean, it was like they when I went to the to the registration table, they treated me like I was a, a member of the family. I mean, it was just I'd never experienced anything like that before. I mean, it was just amazing. And, uh, and so, um, I, uh, so I, you know, got a degree in animal science. You, you went to Utah State, is that correct? No, I went to Brigham Young University. That's true. I got my, my BS and, and, uh, and, and my master's degree at Brigham Young University. Okay, and then you went to Kentucky. Then I went. Then I then I went to Kentucky for my PhD. So how how did you decide to go to Kentucky, and why did you go there? Well, at the when I was working on my master's degree, I uh, was in dairy, and and I was uh, looking at protein, mm -hmm. and and it was at the time I was looking at non-protein nitrogen actually and methods of. Uh, Basically, slow release, uh, slow release urea, uh, 
synchronization of urea, that type of thing, back in those days. We didn't know much about uh, really rumen function, digestive function. And, and it became clear to me that, that uh, this was an area that would be uh, very, very beneficial to the industry to have a better understanding of site and extent of digestion. This kind of research just wasn't being done back in those days. And, and Kentucky <clears throat> was famous at the time because uh, they had been doing quite a bit of research on using what we call experimental surgery, you know, looking at cannulation and so forth along the digestive tract. And I wanted to, uh, wanted to get involved in that. And so I, I chose Kentucky because specifically because of that reason. Surprisingly, however, the, the people that were involved in that had just gone to Florida. And so, but still, uh, I got a response back from Kentucky within maybe two weeks or a week or so of applying. So they were like the very, well, Kansas State was the first to respond, but, but I wasn't interested in, in going to Kansas at that time. Uh, the, uh, I wanted to get into digestive function. And so, uh, but Leonard Bull, uh, who was relatively new faculty at Kentucky, he, uh, he just wrote me a nice letter, a nice invitation, and, and I was excited. And it was, uh, a great opportunity because at Kentucky, I was given a full scholarship and, and didn't really have to be a TA or anything, which, which uh, means I, I, I only worked on my research. I mean, they, they just gave me carte blanche. They said, Richard, just get busy and do it. And so it was a wonderful time in Kentucky. A great, great experience. <laughs> That, that's good. And then you you spent a time in Oklahoma also before you came back to California, right? Right. Well, <clears throat> so the, my intent, uh, even though my work, uh, my master's and PhD both were largely directed at dairy, <clears throat> my intent was uh, to return back to Imperial Valley, as I mentioned at the very beginning to be at that research center. And even then, all the all of my faculty, everybody, you know, they would tell me, Richard, that you're, you're wasting your talent. You shouldn't do that. You know, you should look uh, at something else and so forth. But I told them, no, I, it's that or nothing. I'm going back. And so as I was finishing up my PhD, Dr. Lofgren was uh, leaving uh, El Centro to go to uh, Clayton, New Mexico, because they had just started a new research center there. And so he was given an opportunity to kind of start up that research center and, and do work there. And so he called me and told me that he was leaving, remembering that I was interested in returning back to uh, El Centro. He called me and, and I told him, oh, Dr. Lachman, it's so kind of you and to think of me, et cetera, you know, and, but there is no way, there is no way that I could come just start out with a PhD and go down there and step into the you know, after you've left, I, I, I wouldn't be prepared for something like that. I, I, that would be, I don't think I'm ready for that. And no, he said, no, you should, you should apply, Richard, but I, but I chose not to. And, uh, and then it was a short time after that, that uh, Dr. Fred Owens from Oklahoma State University called and invited me to come and do a postdoc at Oklahoma. And and I told Dr. Owens, I said, Fred, that is so kind. 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you if I told my wife that after all the sacrifices she's made, you know, that I'm just gonna uh, continue to be a student for a while. <laughs> I don't know that wouldn't go over. I don't think that would go over too well. And uh, he said, "Well, okay." And then, but then uh, a few days later, he called me back up again. He said, "What if I said that I have it arranged so that the salary for the postdoc is the same as the assistant professor salary?" I said, "Then, then I'm putting gas in the car. I'm on my way." You know, <laughs> and so, so it was. Uh, so that's what it, you know got it going. And the neat thing was that. As you probably know, Fred Owens is a very open person. I mean, it was so fun to work with him because uh, anything and everything was interesting. And uh, and he was he was of course uh, anxious to get more involved in in digestive function, and so uh, and to, and and to use that as a companion to the work that we were doing, uh, especially out in the Oklahoma Panhandle area, uh, the feedlot research. Uh, use it as a companion to better understand uh, these types of things. And so, uh, so I was there for uh, almost three years. And uh, and then at meeting, uh, one of the symposia that, that we had, um, that I was speaking at, uh, Lee Baldwin from uh, University of California was also on the program. And, and he came up to me and he told me that uh, that position at El Centro was uh, was opening up again and was hoping that I would apply for it. And and so, of course, I did. And mm-hmm. and then that's what, uh, that's history. So now, you know, in 1981, in October of 1981, my office was the very office that doc, Dr. Lostring had. And so wow. it's kind of a... It's kind of an amazing story. In fact, when I was uh, engaged to, to who had become my wife, we went to meet my family in El Centro, and I took her out to that research center. Now, this I'm just a junior in college at that time. I took her out there, and I said, Tamara, this is where we're going to live. This, this, is, this is where I'm going to work. And uh, so it's pretty amazing that, that actually uh, everything turned out exactly as I had. That that's that's pretty amazing. I I knew a little bit about that story, but not with these many details. And and is is it is amazing. So you've you've been here for well two months. You'll be completing two to three months, forty years. Forty years, right? So during this time, what is and then you start your job, right? Forty years ago, and during those forty years, what is what are the f- your favorite things in, in this job, in this position? What are the things that you enjoy most? Can you share some some difficulties that you had at the beginning? And I know that, that, that sometimes there are people who are starting careers, and I'm starting my career now. And, and I also, I'm always curious to see what are the challenges, what are your favorite things during your job during those, those years that you've been here? I'm a, actually, I'm a very independent type of person. And, and so this position was was going to be very good for me because uh, because I like to work independently and uh, and and coming out then I was anxious to be involved with the industry. Of course, I grew up there. I, I had a, a special uh, attachment, you might say, to the industry. Many of the feedlot uh, 
operators at the time I knew personally. And, and so it was, uh, I felt honored, you know, that I would be able to do work that might be beneficial. So the very first thing that I did when I got there actually was I went around and visited several of the feedlots and I asked them uh, what they thought would be most uh, beneficial or most interesting to them. And at the time, generally speaking, uh, it was fat. They wanted to know how they could put more fat in the diet. So really, that became initial, an initial area of focus for me. And if you look, you'll see that I've published many, many, many studies involving uh, different aspects of fat supplementation. In fact, uh, the original work, you know, reestablished the true net energy value of fat in, in the NRC had totally miscalculated that value. And, and so we did work and we showed how that miscalculation was done. And, and, uh, and you'll note that, that from that early time, uh, the, the values of fat then reflect our values, the values we developed at the research center. The University of California's research center here uh, was notable in what we call stress cap work and uh, how to receive calves. Uh, we uh, only feed calves in the, at the time. I mean, for a while, we didn't feed yearlings or older cattle. These are all going to come in as calves and, and newly weaned usually. And so there's a lot of stress, not only in marketing and transportation, but, but just the, the fact that they were newly weaned. And so a lot of research was done early on uh, to look at how best to receive calves. We didn't have the antibiotics that we have today. And, and so mortality and morbidity, these things were very serious issues. And, and so we did a lot of work on, on that. The thing that, uh, and specifically to your question, I like to actually work. I like to be out with the livestock. I like to, to work with the cattle. And so when I first came, obviously I, I didn't have any anything in the past to go with. So I was uh, mostly out at the feedlot, uh, looking at the cattle, working, uh, doing that work. And but what was surprising to me, and, and this addresses your question specifically, but what actually surprised me was that soon I would be spending a lot of time in the office writing and, and uh, preparing manuscripts and, and then later traveling, giving talks. And these talks. This is not what I expected. And so that was uh, a little bit of a, uh, an adjustment for me. I don't think anybody, their favorite thing is writing. And yet I've written hundreds of manuscripts uh, for a professional journal. So it's, that was, you know, I'll say that was not my favorite part. I loved, uh, I loved the research. I loved the discovery, finding out, you know, how things work, but writing manuscripts and so forth. That was, that's part of the job, but that wasn't, I didn't realize how much a part of the job that would ultimately be. And of course, the other thing that, and, and I think that you and Brooke do this as well, Gabriel, but the other part that I think a lot of people understand is that money is what enables research to be conducted. And people wonder why you don't look at this, why you don't look at that. But the reality is, is that we can't look at things unless we have the money to look at it. And, uh, and so that was the other area, the need to constantly be looking for resources financial resources, financial support in order to continue the work. And, and that, that became increasingly difficult over time. Yeah. 
I, I agree that those are, are challenges that I'm, I'm facing right now as well. But we need to learn how to deal with it. And, and it's important. And one other thing that I, I always uh, like to ask, I, and I've seen during your career, uh, like from what we've talked today, I think Dr. Lofgren was one of your first mentors uh, early on. And, and you, you have mentored many students during your research. How important was, and you, you've been my mentor, Brooks mentors as well. We, we tell this to, to everyone. How, how important is it was for you to find a good mentor and then people who guide you throughout your career? And how do you, you as a mentor, how do you feel as guiding young professionals and young students as well? I think that, actually, I think uh, it's not a, mentoring isn't necessarily like, you look at it as an intentional responsibility or something. You you actually uh, you develop the, the interest and the friendship and so forth, and and you feel the 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 team uh, participation. And it's fun to to see people that want to work together and and accomplish the things. The in the case of of Lofgren, as you can imagine, the Initially, the main thing was actually the uh, the direction that I got, you know, the interest that he, I don't think he did that intentionally. I think that it was just, he gave me an invitation and, and, I, and I fell in love with his work, that type of thing. But, uh, but actually, I learned a lot from him and uh, actually from, from Dr. Owens and, and to some extent from Leonard Bull. The, uh, and from my master's um, work, the thing that uh, when I was doing my, when I finished my master's work, I was looking at, at nitrogen, nitrogen synchronization and so forth and in and, and terms of, you know, how it affects lactational response and high-producing dairy cows, which at that time aren't anywhere near what they are today. But, uh, but when I finished that work, I, uh, just for the fun of it, just for the fun of it, I decided because I had measured the gestal energy, I'd actually measured it, the gestal energy intake. I thought, I'm going to look at the relationship between the gestal energy intake and, and uh, milk production. And so I, I did the plot and it was a perfect plot. But it explained almost 100% of the variation in milk production. And, and I can remember, I just like, jump back, I like, what in the world? And so I became very, very attuned to energetics. And and actually it became I, I became a, let's say a believer that energetics of all the nutrition that we learn is the only one that's held up over time. And what we understand about energetics is is actually back then is the same today. In other words, people keep trying to come up with models and other things to improve on it. But the fact of the matter is, it, it works. And, uh, and it explains the variation. Lofgren, you know, he told me that, in fact, he gave me the original inked out manuscript because they were written back in those days, um, not by a computer. And so they would come back from the journal with red ink. And, and so I had the original, the, the California energy system was rejected three times by the journal. And uh, it took a long time for that to pass review because 
because the viewers were offended by the system itself. And, and you can see that we become so dogmatic in the industry, so dogmatic in, in research and science. And it's very difficult for somebody to come up with something novel uh, if it goes against, uh, you know, pressing dogma today. And, and an energy system was a simple, very, very simple approach. And I think it was just too, too simple. And so uh, people struggled. But what happened was that the industry accepted it. And so Lachlan would go around and get caught, and the industry was using it. And I think that's the only reason, this is just my opinion, but I think that's the only reason the journal finally accepted uh, the California Net Energy System was because the industry had adopted it. And, uh, and so uh, fortunately, fortuitously, let's say, for the, the California energy, Net Energy System, uh, computers were just being becoming accessible uh, to feedlots at the time. And so they began to, they, they were able to look at a little bit more sophisticated approach at, at uh, the intake and so forth. And so this uh, facilitated, I think, the adoption of a, of a new energy system. And, but, uh, but I became very familiar with that system. Uh, uh, Leonard Gold, my PhD advisor, he was basic in energetic and uh, did an excellent job of teaching uh, the course that I took on, on energetics. And I really appreciated that. And I think that it gave me a foundation to understand objectively, you know, the different opinions about uh, how energy should be expressed and so forth. But, but it was a real, uh, it was a great experience for me. And, and, uh, and so when I came here to in Imperial Valley to the research center, we were doing what are called comparative slaughter research. In other words, all the studies that I did back in the early days, most all of them, uh, we would actually measure energy retention. We would, we would do specific gravity. We would do an initial group, maybe 10 or 12 spheres, and then we would uh, do, you know, do specific gravity on all the remainder of the animals at, at time of harvest. And that way we would actually measure uh, energy retention. And then uh, but then what I did was I began to compare that with uh, the actual, the expected based on animal performance. But one of the problems for that was that I needed to develop a relationship between net energy for maintenance and net energy for gain. And, uh, and so initially I solved that by a process of iteration. The computer would just simply iterate until it come up with a unique solution. That took a long time. Uh, those the really slow computers that I had initially, it would take almost half an evening, half a night to solve one single data from one pen of cattle. And so it was a very slow process. In fact, I would have the, the little Monroe program with tap there. I'd have it give beeping sounds just so I would know that it was still working on the problem. But then, it, you know, of course, with increasing speed on computers, it became faster. But then, but then, one day in my office, I began to ponder, you know, instead of iteration, I wanted to make it so that it could go on a spreadsheet. So it could just, would, wouldn't need to have a, a, an iterative solution. And so, and it occurred to me like a, like a light going off that, that actually uh, I have two simultaneous equations. I can solve that using the quadratic formula. And so I, I developed the formula and, 
and uh, and I looked at uh, the solution and compared that to the iteration, and and it gave exactly the same answer. And so that's when, uh, and that's where that comes from. You can see back in those earlier publications where I actually show I went from iteration to uh, the quadratic formula. But the thing that that I think from all of this that I learned from uh, my work with Lachlan and others who were uh, mentors for me was uh, to trust the system. And, uh, and so then it developed within me the idea of expectation that, that speed intake should be an expected function of average daily gain and, and uh, the genetic potential of the animal in terms of its mature size and so forth. And, and so that was, uh, and, and the more work I did, the more sure I was that that in fact was the case. And, and you know, Pedro, you've seen in the work, you see how predictable these mm-hmm. things really are. And as you do more and more of this and you continue to see how predictable it is, it's only going to reaffirm how important this very thing is, that, that people recognize that animal performance is, in fact, very, very predictable as a group. Individuals can be different, but a group of pentacatons, no, they're going to be the same. Lockton would say to me, Richard, the average of 10 animals is one animal. And so, you know, you could, meaning, you know, you you, you basically need about 10 animals to have good of, uh, on any good. And, and I think that's been something I've tried to always keep in mind, you know, when I, when I think about this. That's pretty good. Dr. Z, during those, uh, during those 40 years, what, if you could name, uh, a major, a few major changes that the industry has adopted during that time. Would you be able to name like a few changes that you have seen during those during that time? I mean, you you already mentioned the the advances in thinking computers that was huge to to the process that we have today. Uh, but is there anything else that you see that was oh now is we we've improved that a lot from from back in the day? I think that in terms of uh... The industry itself is very dogmatic. It's hard for the industry to change. And uh, changes, the science has made leaps, but the industry has made baby steps in terms of its ability to change. It, it's just very, very, very difficult uh, for lots of reasons, which I won't go into, but uh, the industry struggles to change. But one of the things, just like in the dairy industry and so forth, is uh, the change in uh, in potential of the animals themselves, and and so we see uh, a huge change in uh, growth performance, and and this is because we've moved away from smaller frame type cattle to uh, intermediate to larger frame cattle, and and so like when I was young, you know, cattle barely came up to your waist. I mean, it was a they were smaller. Uh, smaller mature size, but now, you know, they're just a lot bigger. But I think probably one of the biggest uh, tools, the biggest thing that's helped the industry are the growth implants. And and, uh, there is still nothing to this day that has a greater impact on the cattle performance than the proper use of implants. And and I think that this, like, for example, even locally, you know, I don't think uh, the feedlots are taking sufficient advantage 
of the implant in terms of animal work performance um, for lots of you know reasons that aren't really justifiable. But let's just say that's something that that happens. And but you know we're seeing, uh, and, and I think that everybody in the industry would agree, a huge change in 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 biology. And a big part of that change is due to change in genetics of the animal. But another huge part of that change is uh, are the implants, and and so uh, and hormonal implants I'm referring to. So they <clears throat> when I was uh, starting out, uh, Pedro the the ten and a quarter, thousand twenty five or something like that. That would be for a captive. That would be a, a a typical harvest weight. And we felt like there's just no way it, it, those cattle can be taken beyond that point because they just become so inefficient. And and now, you know, you can't hardly even sell them unless you're at uh, 13, 13 and a quarter or 1340 or something like that. I mean, it's just, they've just taken them up to be really, really heavy weight. And, uh, and so <clears throat> I think that Anybody looking back, they would see that that this is probably one of the absolutely biggest changes in the industry. Is, excuse me, the harvest, the change in harvest rate, and the, the associated growth performance with that change. They simply do not slow down. These cattle uh, yes. just keep; they just keep going. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, that that's uh, amazing. Uh, we, I don't know, I don't know where where we are going to stop, but it's, they, they've become really, really heavy over time. And in fact, last year when we, when we were at the slaughterhouse, Brooke and I saw some, uh, a group of cattle, they were 16, 17, uh, much heavier than ours, but that's, that's amazing. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It, 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 uh, I, I think that we're getting to a point where, the frame on the animal may not be adequate to support that heavy weight. So we're going to mm -hmm. see more length cattle, more injuries and so forth. Uh, yeah, that's good. No, Dr. Zin, that's, that's been really, really good. I've, I've learned a lot during, during our conversation today. Uh, before, before we finish up, uh, I just uh, would like to ask you just a few questions to that we'd like to ask to know more about you. Very quick questions and, and just uh, uh, one simple answer. The first question that we ask is, uh, what is your favorite food? <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult question. I, I, uh, I think that uh, as a general thing, I would say Mexican food. Good. Which was, I, think, I think Brooke, Brooke, Brooke had the same, same answer. I don't, I don't know Brooke. Uh, she also said she really liked the Mexican food. Yeah, and I think we've had several other guests also say Mexican food. I think it's a very popular type of food. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, one thing that we also ask, do you, do you like to listen to music? If yes, what is your favorite type of music? You know... I think I'm probably unique in that uh, I don't listen to music. Yeah. And to, for me, music is an amazing distraction. And uh, so really, I, 
I like uh, uh, hymns, you know, church type music, um, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't really, uh, I don't really listen to music. I, I never have, never, ever in my life really had that much interest in popular music. Let's say that's good. Uh, one one of the other things that we always ask if if you could go back in time, uh, let's say when you're starting your career. What is something that you know today that you wish you knew back then? I think that uh, hopefully there's a lot of things I know today that I wish I knew back then. And uh, because we grow, you know, we, you know, I truly, you know, I think like most people, I was taught certain things and I thought that's how things are. And, and we put almost without exception, minerals, vitamins, protein, nothing agreed with what I was taught before. And so um, I was, I've been increasingly disappointed in, uh, in not being told in the beginning that these are just ideas and that uh, this is not, we, we don't know for sure any of this stuff. And uh, But that's not how I received it, the information. And, and so uh, I think that looking back, I wish that I had known that to start out with. Because what happens is, is that limitations, you know, when we look at animal performance, we do studies to evaluate animal performance. We're going to have what we call a limiting nutrient. We're going to have something that is going to be first limiting. And if we don't solve that, then the thing, other things that we're looking at aren't going to be able to express themselves. They're not going to, we're not going to be able to find out. And so we always are running into this confusion because even though we, we know that this or that is very important and we need to research it, uh, there are other things that could also have an impact. And and so I believe that in, over the years, a lot of the work I've done has I've had to repeat or do things again because I, I wasn't aware of uh, that that maybe there was another nutrient that was being first limiting at the time. And and so I think that that would be the main thing. And my caution to all students is don't believe that stuff. You know, just it's interesting, you know, look at look at it as something you want to understand or, or actually pay attention to, but don't think that it's correct, you know. Um, realize that that really most everything <clears throat> we don't know much about. And like I said before, the one thing we do, we can put a lot of confidence in. And I can say this after being involved in this work for almost 50 years, that uh, the energetic, you can trust that one. And uh, but other thing, everything else, just wink at it because we don't know for sure what's going on. That, that, yeah, that's pretty good. That's that's amazing. We've we've had good conversations about this out at the feedlot, and, and I've learned a lot uh, during during those conversations. Uh, I our our last last question, uh, and and that's more we call the, the kettle call top tip is is basically uh, if you want to leave uh, our listeners with something to read, it could be one paper, it could be Lofgren Garrett paper, it, it can be a book that you have. It doesn't need to be specifically related to animal production or animal science, 
But is there any any book or anything that you would like to recommend? It could be an NRC book or something that you would like to recommend our listeners to to go and, and read in the future. Um, actually, um, I can't think of you know any specific thing that um, that I would that I don't know who the listeners would be in the first place. You know who exactly I'm talking about. <laughs> the the things that would be impactful, I think, uh, would be uh, well. There's just so many to <laughs> identify. To identify one or the other, I don't know. I personally, I think, uh, in, in all of the publications that I've got, I think that 2008 one on energetics would be very helpful. I think people, if they would study that, and <clears throat> uh, because it reflects. So many cattle, and uh, and it mm -hmm. covers the, it covers the topic in so many different ways. I think, uh, but it's maybe not easy reading, but still, uh, I think that probably, especially for students, would be probably one of the most fruitful things that they could study uh, as they try to understand uh, at least feedlot uh, growth performance, advocated gain, feed efficiency, and how to predict all of that. It's uh, it would be a good thing to truly understand. Is that the 2008 you mentioned? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I think I know. I, I, will, I will put that in the description uh, of the episode. Okay. No, that's that's pretty good, Dr. Zing. I don't know uh, if you have... Uh, I would like to thank you uh, for... for let, me, let me say this. Let me say this, Pedro. Yes. And Brooke, that looking back over my life, if I could say one thing I wish... I had done differently, I would have spent a lot more time with my children. I would have held them in my arms, told them how much I loved them, a lot more than I did. And, and I think that life is so precious and it passes so quickly. And, and, and that would be my parting words, you know. If you want to have some good advice, grab your children, give them a hug, and tell them how much you love them. Well, that that's that's always always important. I I I, well, I, I think I learned uh, pretty quick in my life that, and, and one of my my advisors always told me, "Family first, family first, family first." And and I'm a strong believer of that. And 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 now being being far from from home is it, it's, it's hard, but but I'm I'm looking forward to to go and, and spend time with them. So. But it's it's important. It's it's always 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 important. But thank you very much, Doctor Zing. It's it's been a really fun talk. I, I hope our listeners appreciate and and for me it was was very good to learn more about your career. It's been almost a year since I've been uh, working with you in almost on daily basis, and every day I learn something new. And and I can tell you that I've I've learned a lot just in this. Uh, I don't know, 40 minutes conversation. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, I appreciate your time. Always willing to teach Brooke and I and, and now sharing a little bit more with, with our listeners. Um, I don't know if, Brooke, do you have any final comments, any final message? No questions, but that was great to hear. Again, I've heard that story before, but I, I enjoy hearing it every time. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not sure if you have any other final message, Dr. Zing. 
No, that's it. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for, for our next uh, research call as well. Keep doing the quizzing. And thank you always uh, for your time. If our listeners have any comments, suggestions, feedback, you can please give that to us. Send an email to kettlecallucd at gmail.com or my personal email, that's pcarvalho at ucdavis.edu. And, and we'll do our best to answer you as soon as possible. Thank you very much for listening to Kettle Call Podcast. And it's, it's, is it a good time for a call, bro? It's always a great time for a Kettle Call. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Whispers are a-jingling, a cowboy is singing this lonesome cattle call.